So uh, as I do every Sunday, I try to begin by asking you to open your Bibles. And I don't do that because I'm in a rut or I forgot that I said it last week. I do that on purpose because I never want us uh, to veer off that track. I never want to teach from Oprah's latest best-selling book or anything like that. So let me ask you, please, to open your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're continuing to uh, make our way through the Bible. We paused in Jeremiah 25 a few weeks ago, which was 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon, invaded Jerusalem, and took some of the the, uh, people captive back to Babylon, including Daniel and uh, three of his friends. And so we've stepped out now into the book of Daniel to try to um, put ourselves into the the time frame of when this actually took place. Now remember, Prophet Jeremiah is still back in Judah, in the land of Judah there, and um, we're going to hear more from him in the weeks to come. Daniel chapter 4 is where we'll be today. A young teenage boy named Peter was once playing at his friend's house in the mountains of Scotland, and they had gotten so caught up in their fun that they didn't notice the sun had set and it was almost dark. In a bit of a panic, Peter rushed out of his friend's house and began making his way home through the fields and over the the hills, and uh, it grew darker and darker, and along the way, um, as he was as he was sort of walking through now the, the inky darkness, at one point, as he was taking a step, um, it seemed to him that he heard a voice say, Peter. And he stopped in fear and fell to his hands and knees, uh, waiting, w- wondering where this voice had come from. And he sort of gathered himself again and uh, began to crawl forward on his hands and knees, terrified of what was taking place. And as he reached out one hand, he felt nothing in front of him. And his eyes began to adjust to the darkness, and he looked up and saw that he was at the edge of a cliff, about a hundred foot drop down to the rocks below. And if he had taken one more step, he would have fallen off that cliff And there, on his hands and knees in the darkness in the mountains of Scotland, Peter thanked God for saving his life. And many years later, when Peter Marshall became the chaplain of the United States Senate after immigrating to America, he called that experience God's tap on my shoulder. God's tap on my shoulder. As we go through life, there are times when God taps us on the shoulder. There are times when God stops us in our tracks for one reason or another in order to get our attention, and it's up to us as to whether or not we're going to listen to him. We've been looking for a few weeks now at how God was trying to get the attention of a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. God had sent him dreams warning him of his pride. Nebuchadnezzar had seen his wise men fail to interpret the dreams, but he saw the God of Daniel interpret the dreams, and Daniel gave full 
credit to God. He, he said, your wise men can't do this, but there is a God in heaven who can. Nebuchadnezzar had seen all this with his own eyes. And then, um, you know, his pride still got the best of him, and he built that 90-foot golden statue and made everyone bow down and worship it every time they heard the music. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had um, refused to bow down to any other god but the god of heaven. And in a rage, Nebuchadnezzar had thrown them into the fiery furnace. And he had witnessed with his own eyes God rescue those three young men from that fiery furnace. He saw all of this with his own eyes. But despite all of this, his heart remained unchanged. And now we come to Daniel chapter 4, and we see God is, is tapping Nebuchadnezzar on the shoulder once again. And I would suggest to you that if you listen carefully today to God's word, that you and I will be able to identify more than you might imagine with how God is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar responds. I believe we can put ourselves in this situation, even in 2023, from, this, uh, from these events roughly 2,600 years ago now. So in chapter 4, God sends Nebuchadnezzar another dream. And in verse 10, he begins describing this dream for us. He says this, These were the visions of my head while I was on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found their shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Well, so far, so good. This is not a bad dream. Sounds very pleasant, a lovely scene. And then we come to verse 13. He goes on, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts go out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. Boy, is that some strange language. Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet until he, the first six chapters of Daniel are pretty easy. So far, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, is very content with, with hearing this dream. He still doesn't understand what it means, but nothing has been applied to him yet. You know, the first part of this dream, we see everything thriving and, and um, lovely, lush tree and people being fed, animals being fed from it. Then he says this strange thing. There was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And then the tree got chopped down, and now he's totally confused with what's going on. So as before, 
He, he didn't learn from before the previous dream. He once again called in his magicians and wise men and astrologers and sorcerers, but they couldn't tell him what the dream meant. But then comes this holy one from heaven, and he gives him the answer to the dream, which we'll see in just a second, but it wasn't the answer that he wanted. Um, do we ever run into that in our life where God speaks to us in some way and uh, we're searching for an answer and we go, yeah, that's not, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. Let's try again. Reminds me of back in First uh, Kings 22, I believe, where King Ahab, uh, there was a prophet God had sent to prophesy to King Ahab, but Ahab like a little child, flew into a rage and said, this prophet never tells me anything good. All his prophecies are bad. And so he said, I don't want to hear from that prophet anymore. I'm going to create my own group of prophets who will tell me good news. And that's exactly what he did. And he shunned Micaiah the prophet and said, I only want to hear these prophets who are going to tell me good things. Thankfully, we don't have that problem in our world today. (laughs) Not even among many Christians, do we? It's still the case today, this very same thing. Most people, when it comes down to it, most people don't want to hear the truth from God's word. They don't want to hear what God has to say, so they look for answers everywhere else. You know, they read, they read Professor Farfignugan's latest book on why God doesn't exist, and they get all excited and go, ah, oh, look, here, I found the answers. You see, I found the answers to, to what I'm looking for. But they know better than anyone else that there's still no peace in their heart. There's still that nagging emptiness down there that they cannot resolve. And still they go back. They're the same old wise men and philosophers and theologians looking for answers anywhere but from God himself. There was certainly no peace in Nebuchadnezzar's heart at this point. He, he was greatly troubled by this dream. He's tossing and turning in his bed at night because God is tapping him on the shoulder. Even in his sleep, God is trying to get his attention, but he's not doing a very good job of listening. And, you know, I find it interesting in this book of Daniel how many... How many um, should I say, unusual ways God uses to try to communicate with Nebuchadnezzar and with others. This didn't hit me until some years ago when studying the history of Babylon, you realize Babylon was a nation that was covered up in um, occult practices. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar had his own staff of magicians and sorcerers and astrologers. And so God comes and, if I can say it this way, God comes and speaks to them in a way that they would understand. He speaks to them through dreams and miraculous visions and so on. And God is so gracious, you know, to come to us and sort of speak to us in in our own language. He may speak to you in a way that he doesn't to me and, and vice versa. And God now is coming and, and beginning to reveal these things to King Nebuchadnezzar, even in the middle of the night. But he's still not listening. Verse 17. 
This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. That's an important sentence. You may want to underline that. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar. Who's Belteshazzar? That's Daniel, right? That's his new pagan name that he's been given by the king, trying to conform him to the, this godless culture. He says, now you, Daniel, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me. But you are able, watch this, because you're a really smart guy. This is so important, what we're about to read. But you are able, Daniel, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. This pagan king recognized the spirit of God in young Daniel. He, he knew something was different about him. It was clear from a mile away. I wonder as you and I move about among people in the world in our week, are they able to see anything different in us? Or do we just kind of uh, like a chameleon blend in with wherever we are? I'm not saying, again, I, I say this a lot, but I'm not suggesting you go out and be, uh, you know, be weird. Don't, don't give people ammunition to hate Christians. They've got enough already. But there should be something different about us. There should be a winsomeness about us. There, there should be something lovely about us, that fragrance of Christ that we leave everywhere we go. So the king calls Daniel in once again now, and he, he, he says, tell me what this dream means. I know you can. The Spirit of God is in you. But now, we don't have time to read this all. As I said, these are very, very long verses and detailed descriptions that are given in this book. But the next few verses let us know that Daniel is a little concerned now to respond to the king because God has told him what the dream means, but it's not going to be good news for the king. So he has a choice. Is he just going to remain silent and maybe give some kind of explanation that will pacify this king who, uh, in a moment's notice, can snap and demand that people be put to death? Verse 22. Daniel starts with the good news. He says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Once again, I must believe that Nebuchadnezzar swelled with pride in this moment, just as he did earlier when, in chapter 2, when Daniel told him, you know, this, this great statue I saw statue of the nations uh, with a, a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and a belly of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then he said, but you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Ah, I'm the head of gold. And rather than learning the lesson from that, 
Nebuchadnezzar, in the next chapter, goes out and builds his own 90-foot statue. And since he's the head of gold, he goes, you know what, I'm just going to make the whole thing out of gold. It'll represent me. Now here again, Daniel says, oh, you, you king, you're the one in this dream who has grown and become strong. Your greatness reaches to the ends of the earth and to the heavens. But then Daniel had to give the bad news. He said, it's also you, king. It's also you who's going to be cut down. You see, there, there was a lesson Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. It was a lesson so important that it is repeated in Daniel 4.17, Daniel 4.25, Daniel 4.26, Daniel 4.32, and even over in Daniel 5.21, later when Daniel is recounting this dream to the next king. In all of these verses, there's one thing that God is trying to get through to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's this. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to continue to be brought low until what? Until you know that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. And I believe, you know, people get all, you know, caught up in the prophecy of Daniel, and rightly so. There's a tremendous amount there in the last half of the book. But I believe, taking everything in this book into account, that this is the central message of the book of Daniel. That all men would know that the God of heaven is the sovereign ruler over all things, past, present, and future. And folks... It's no wonder a powerful man like Nebuchadnezzar had a hard time surrendering himself to the ruling authority of a king who was greater than he was. Nebuchadnezzar at this time was the most powerful man on earth. History, secular history tells us this. Uh, The British Museum is filled with uh, artifacts from Nebuchadnezzar's reign and Babylon and so on. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. And no one told him what to do. No one ruled over him. He had the final say on everything. When he spoke, people jumped. And now Daniel's coming along and saying to him, you're going to continue to be cut down. Just like that, the statue, the the image in chapter 2, when the, the stone came and crushed that image and the whole thing was turned to powder and scattered to the four winds so that there was nothing left. That was a picture of you and your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. He still didn't get it. Now here, you're this great tree. You're providing life and nourishment and shade and all for people to the ends of the earth. But if you do not recognize God as the sovereign authority over all things, including your life, you're going to be cut down to nothing. You know, it's exactly what mankind still fights today. And if you want to get a little more personal, I think if all of our struggle in life, if all of our sins that we wrestle with could be summarized down to one thing, I believe this is it right here. That we do not want God ruling over us. We don't want God ruling over that habit that we enjoy. We don't want God ruling over that resentment that we're holding on to. We don't want God ruling over the plans for 
our, our college or our future as a young person, and so on and so on and so on. We want to be the ruler and Lord of our own life. People today are still dealing with exactly the same thing Nebuchadnezzar is wrestling with here. They're striving to make a name for themselves. This was one of the top things on Nebuchadnezzar's agenda. He wanted his name to be known. They're striving to build their own kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with building his own kingdom. They don't want God ruling over them. And where does that battle come from? It comes from our sinful heart. It comes from our old sin nature. In the, in the garden, the serpent said to Eve, essentially, you don't have to do what he says. Do your own thing. You'll be much happier if you do. And we still wrestle with that lie today. God taps us on the shoulder. And he, he speaks something to us, a word of conviction or correction or instruction and we shake it off. Go, ah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. It comes from a sinful heart, and this is what Daniel has to address next. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. You ready for this? Speaking to the most powerful man on earth, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And I can't help but think how desperately the leaders in our nation and around the world need men like Daniel who would look them in the eye and say, break off your sins and your iniquity while there is still time. How we need that today. And I would even say how desperately many churches in our nation, the congregations need to hear the whole truth of God proclaimed to them week in and week out, and they're not getting it. They're not getting it. I will tell you one of the thoughts that stays with me often as I try to serve alongside each of you in this church is that the Bible says those who are called to teach, those who are called to proclaim God's word will be judged more strictly. And I have to stand before God one day. And I will either be able to say to him, Lord, you know, um, I messed up on a lot of stuff. But to the best of my ability, I held nothing back. I preached your word. Or I'm going to hang my head in shame and go, why did I shrink back from saying what needed to be said? One of those two things will be true of me. When the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian church for the last time, knew that he would never see them again. He stood with them there on the beach in that tender moment with tears and hugs but he said something to them that just stands out to me so much. In, in Acts 20, 27, Paul was able to say with a clear conscience, I have not shunned or shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I've not shrunk back. I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. Jeremiah, who we've just been looking at, 
The same thing in Jeremiah 26, 2 says, Thus says the Lord, he's speaking to Jeremiah, giving him an instruction. Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. And what do you want? What do you want me to say, Lord? All the words that I command you to speak, all the words, do not diminish a word. You know, I, you look back through history, and I thank God for the men and women dotted along the, the course of history who have been like Paul, who have been like Daniel, who have been like Jeremiah and Isaiah and many of the others. They stood tall and they've said exactly what needed to be said. One of my favorites, unfortunately, we have to go back almost 30 years to, uh, to re- recount this event. But on January 26, uh, 23rd, 1996, Pastor Joe Wright was asked to open the new session of the Kansas City House of Representatives with prayer. And here's what he prayed. This is a quote, a long quote. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. Doors are now slamming in the Senate as people are getting up and walking out. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us and cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your son, the living savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, can you just imagine hearing something like that today in our government? The person would probably be locked up in prison. We need to pray for more men and women, just like Pastor Joe Wright, who would boldly proclaim the truth of God without hesitation, without apology. And you say, well, Phil, that's fine. You're, you're a teacher, so you get a chance to do that. What about me? Hey, listen, you don't have to, you don't have to get up in people's face and proclaim this. In, in your day-to-day life, the unsaved would probably never admit this to you, but they're looking to you for truth. They're looking to you for something sure and solid and secure and unchanging in this world that is fractured so badly. You have an opportunity 
to proclaim the truth to the people around you through your life, through your convictions, through your words, through your choices, your priorities, your goals, your ambitions. Nebuchadnezzar had had heard and seen God's power more than most people do in a lifetime. But he was still filled with pride. He refused. He refused to get up from the throne of his heart and invite God to sit there. Uh, Years ago, some friends of ours were telling us that they visited a church for the first time, and they got there kind of early. They found a seat, and they sat down. Um, And just before the service started, an elderly couple walked up to them and leaned down and said, excuse me, you're in our seats. But you see... How often do we do the same thing to God? God takes the throne of our life. Lord, I want to be saved. I give my life to you. God takes the throne. And at some point, we we come and we lean into him. We say, "Um, excuse me, you're in my seat. I need you to move. Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with pride. Just look at this in verse 29 and 30. So now Daniel has interpreted the dream, and it says, At the end of 12 months, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and he spoke, saying, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And here we see once again, if we look carefully at verse 29, we see the kindness and the patience of God. God gave Nebuchadnezzar another year to repent. Another whole year. At the end of 12 months, this man's heart is still filled with pride. And even at the end of that year, he refused. And verse 31 gives us these shocking words. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. See, God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar time and time again, but despite all this, he continued his life as usual. And we might think, boy, what a dummy Nebuchadnezzar was to do that. Until we pause And look in the mirror and realize how often we do the same thing. God prompts your heart about something he wants you to do, to to end a relationship, to abandon a bad habit, or to serve him in some specific way, but you ignore his voice and you carry on with your life as usual. And I will tell you, you can turn away from God as many times as you want to. But you need to know, The day is coming when God's patience will be replaced with God's judgment. God will not be mocked. He will not be made a fool of by anyone. We can turn away from him as long as we choose to do so. But a day is coming when his patience will be replaced by his judgment. Verse 33, that very hour, 
The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. Boy, that is loaded. That's loaded. God is not a liar. He says something's going to happen. It's going to happen. The word was fulfilled that very hour. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. In other words, he lived outdoors till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And critics will say, oh, how absurd. Here we are now. Now, the Bible's gone all wacky on us once again, and they're off into Grimm's fairy tales and La La Land, and how in the world could this possibly be true? Well, if if those people would calm down for just a second and do a little research, they would see instantly that medical and psychiatric literature has diagnosed this as a real condition for years and years and years. It's called lycanthropic insanity, or lycanthropy is the, the... shorter name for it, from the Greek word lykos, which means wolf, and anthropos, which means man. It's also called um, uh, boanthropy. And here it is, let me quote, a rare mental condition involving the delusion of being an animal with correspondingly altered behavior, including walking on all fours, eating grass, and even living with animals in their natural habitat. So once again, we read something in the Bible, and and in our brilliance, we're very quick to go, oh, really? We're the ones who need to catch up with this old book, which is far, far ahead of us. Nebuchadnezzar had turned his back on God, and now he was experiencing God's judgment. But as I've told you before, God's punishment always has a purpose. You read through the Bible, and if you're not careful, you can, you can get the sense in the Old Testament that God is just up there in heaven, hanging out, and indiscriminately dispensing uh, judgment throughout the earth, just because apparently he has a blast doing that. It's not true. We must read the Bible in context. We must understand the heart of God, which we have now seen as we've gone through the Old Testament now up to this point. We've seen this over and over and over again, that God spends generations calling out to wicked people saying, please return to me. You don't understand. There's a law in place that I cannot even break. I've put a law in place which is immutable, which says, if you turn your back on me, at some point my judgment is going to fall on you. Please come back to me before this happens. Would any parent be accused of being an unkind parent for pleading with their wayward child to come back before they face the consequences. No, that would be a good parent. This is exactly what we see God doing throughout the Bible. And when his judgment does come, it always has a purpose. It's never random. It's never indiscriminate. His ultimate desire is always to restore us to what he wants us to be. And that's what God wanted to do even for this pagan king. Do you see the heart of God? Like seriously, if I was God and I saw this man and I saw what he was doing, putting people to death and all this stuff and worshiping false gods, I'd say, let him rot. Let him rot in hell. I don't care about him. See how different God is from us? God says, no. I don't want the wicked to perish without me. God's heart is so gracious. 
Remember the verses we read said the tree would be cut down, but a stump would remain. And it's a picture of God humbling someone, but not destroying them. God having to cut someone down in their pride and bring them low. But he says, I'm going to leave a bit of hope there, a bit of promise that we can start to grow again into something useful. And Nebuchadnezzar spent years in this horrible condition. And it was only then when he was at his lowest point in life that he finally looked up. Verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Now, that's, uh, there's a whole sermon right there. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Talk about speaking from experience. Nebuchadnezzar had finally discovered the only remedy for fallen man. After he had built his kingdom as high as it could go, he was brought down to the lowest place in his life, and he did what he should have done all along. He lifted his eyes to heaven. See, up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar had, had kept going back to the same old wise men, the same old magicians, the same old sorcerers who were never once able to give him an answer. It was only when he turned his eyes to heaven that he gained the peace and the certainty he had lacked all along. And I wonder, what about us this morning? I wonder if you like Nebuchadnezzar, are trying hard to build your own kingdom and make a name for yourself. I wonder if you're continually turning to those same old resources that have never been able to give you any lasting peace, and yet you keep going back to them, thinking this time it'll be different. This time, when I pursue my old life, it's going to have a better outcome. This time, things will be different. And yet you keep getting the same empty results. Today, you have a chance to do what Nebuchadnezzar did, to lift your eyes to heaven, to recognize God's authority over all, and to humble yourself beneath his kingship. Say, what does that mean? What does that look like in practical terms? 
Well, maybe it means for you saying something like, God, I've, I've been holding on to the sin in my life, but I want to surrender it to you today. Um, God, I've been filled with pride, but I want to humble myself before you have to humble me. God, my whole world has been revolving around me. But today, I want to make you the center of my life. I will tell you, the only place that you will ever find the answer to the longing in your heart, and I know, I understand this sounds like a pastor thing to say, but challenge me on this if you want to. Come back to me in about 10 years if you choose to disobey this and let me know how things are going. I hope you won't. But the only place you will ever find the answer to the longing in your heart is in a relationship with this God most high through the way made possible by his son, Jesus. It's the only place. You'll never find it in money. You'll never find it in sex. You'll never find it in a career. You'll never find it in power. You won't find it anywhere else. Today, maybe that's where you are. You know, maybe you look at your life and you go, boy, if, if I have to have a moment of honesty here, even just with myself, even just in my own heart, if I have to get really, really honest about everything, I would have to admit that I have royally messed up my life. And I'm sitting here now in the pig pen like the prodigal son, thinking just a few months earlier that I was smarter than my daddy and that I knew how to run my own life. Look at me now. Look at me now. Boy, I have messed things up. Maybe you're there today. And you go, God, I'm just, I'm tired of trying to maneuver through life on my own resources. I'm trying to, to find my own way in this. God, I come back to you today. I want you to restore me once again. You need to know whoever you are. Wherever you may be today or whatever your past may hold, if God can restore a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar, he can restore you too. Where are you in this today? Are you going to ignore God's tap on your shoulder one more day? God's convicting you, hey, hey, if you straighten up this area, your life will change. And you go, yeah, maybe tomorrow. Why not come to him today? Why not come to him and say, Lord, I truly want to understand the central point in the book of Daniel that your kingdom rules over all. And who in the world am I, my little insignificant self, to stand here and say, no, you're not going to rule over me? He will one day, now or later. One day, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that he's Lord over all. You can do it now, or you can do it then when it's too late. God is waiting for you this morning. I encourage you, don't allow yourself to have to be brought to the place Nebuchadnezzar was, the lowest point in his life. But if you're there today, all you have to do is look up to heaven. You'll find what you're searching for. Let's pray.
Lord, the truth is, I think um, we'd all have to admit to one degree or another what stubborn creatures we are. Our sin nature fights us every step of the way in our relationship with you. We keep telling ourselves we can figure it out. We keep telling ourselves we can find the way through the darkness of this world, but just like Peter Marshall, if we've drifted off the path, we can take one more step that could plunge us to the rocks below. And Lord, you're constantly reaching out to us. You're constantly calling our name. You're constantly tapping us on the shoulder trying to warn us, trying to bring us back on the right path. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness and your patience with us. But I pray, Lord, none of us would presume on your kindness. I pray none of us would just assume that it's going to be there tomorrow. So, Lord, I ask for everyone here, including myself, that today, to whatever measure we individually need to do this, I pray, Lord, that we would make sure that you alone are on the throne of our heart and life. And that you are sovereign over every aspect of who we are. I pray that we would give you complete rule, complete reign in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart.